Miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. We talked to a teacher who once felt lockdown measures were justified, now asks the questions, are our kids becoming broken and when do we prioritize their well-being? Will we come rolling back, roaring back? Well, that's what the politicians like to say, but our GDP numbers tell us there's not a roar, not even a meow. And vaccines are Justin Trudeau's kryptonite. New polling shows that kryptonite is taking a chink out of his armor. Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. By getting through to you, that's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? We know that just one case of the variant that comes in uh, could cause significant challenges. And that's why we need to take extra measures. Yeah, OK, newsflash, the variant is here and uh, these half-baked measures were needed a year ago. But of course, back then, politicians were too busy suggesting that that was racist. Alex Pearson with you on this Friday, January 29th. Whew. Boy, this week went fast. It was busy. Holy Toledo. Welcome, though, to a very silly day of political theater where I think the the spin that we heard today is pretty insulting and the measures announced uh, come way too little and way too late. But, of course, by now you have been uh, hearing about the Trudeau government announcing these tougher measures for travel. Not all travel, of course, just uh, travel from Canada to sunny destinations, which is what, you know, for me today is just so nonsensical. Because while sunny destinations are off the table until at least April, you can travel all over the world, all over the world where these variants are spreading. You know, you can't go to the Bahamas, but hey, everyone can come to Canada. You can come in from the UK, Brazil, South Africa, come one, come all, just come on in. I mean, the variant's here. It's too late to stop it now. And so all these new restrictions announced today... These are things we were supposed to do a year ago. Remember when all those doctors in China were saying COVID is coming and then, of course, they disappeared? But back then, as I said, you know, suggesting the travel restrictions we're seeing now, which were in the epicenter, got you called racist. And, you know, you just think about where would we be? Imagine where we'd be today had those same people spent less time playing, you know, identity politics and then putting in restrictions that we're only seeing now. You know, now when we're completely upside down and it looks like to me that those in charge are trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube. But what's really, you know, at play when you boil it down is just a whole lot of politics because the premiers have been asking for Trudeau to implement these uh, travel restrictions for months. And, and it's only today, just today, on the very same day that Ford decided to, you know, take things into his own hands and he was going to do his announcement at three o'clock that, oh, what do you know, the prime minister comes out and announces something. And his something contradicts what Doug Ford announced. It looks but like it's also not measures. being brought in for a week, a couple of weeks, which is why Premier Ford Uh, is crossing into federal jurisdiction and announced today that starting Monday, the mandatory testing of everyone arriving at Pearson begins. It looks like these new measures won't be fully in place until a few weeks from now. That's a few weeks too long. There's holes in the roof, and this is one hole that we can uh, try to plug to the best of our ability. And I've always said about the airports, uh, e- even on the voluntary basis that we had, at least at least we're having an idea and we're, we're catching 
some some folks going through that inadvertently uh, have or knew that they had COVID. So, you know, if the province is doing the rapid testing, again, something that should have been happening months ago, I don't know how Trudeau's measures make sense. Because under his restrictions, everyone arriving in Canada goes into quarantine, at least at the airports, because they haven't even bothered to do anything at the land borders yet. But you have to go to a hotel for three days at a cost of two grand, because apparently the Trudeau government made deals with what, like the Four Seasons? Three days at two grand? Who can afford that? It's coming out of your pocket. I mean, the price is ridiculous. But uh, but if Ford is rapid testing on arrival, why would folks need to go to a hotel for three days and then wait for a negative test to arrive? It doesn't it doesn't make any sense. And that's because what Trudeau announced today is smoke and mirrors, because, you know, it sounds like Trudeau wants to stop the threat of cases already here, but he's not. There are still huge loopholes that allow people to travel in from actual hot zones. So, look, we got half measures. That's what we got. And the window for what should have done and made sense, that that closed a long time ago. You know, what we got is political deflection. We get this announcement to distract from the real story, which, of course, is that vaccines are not coming on time again because we're getting another delay on deliveries, this time Moderna. And then this morning... The European Union announces they're going to be restricting what and how many vaccines are exported. And yet, you know, you listen to Trudeau this morning. He is adamant. There's nothing to see here. We always expected them to fluctuate a little bit, Mm -hmm. which is why we worked so hard to, first of Mm -hmm. all, establish good relations with these companies, uh, to Mm -hmm. sign deals and contracts with these uh, companies early on to have a larger range of potential vaccines for Canadians and um, where uh, we are confident that we are going to be able to hit the big milestones that we laid out to Canadians. That guy is the only one who's confident. That guy is the only one who's confident. No one else is confident. And I don't know how he can actually say that because what was agreed to in the contracts, which, by the way, we're not allowed to see. Other countries have put those contracts out there online to say, hey, you bought it. Here's what the agreement is. But not in Canada. The government of transparency just won't put them online. So we have no idea what they signed to. But it doesn't recognize changes that are now being made by the European Union. So I don't know what Pfizer can do and can't do. But you know, the European Union has made it clear. They made them. They paid for them. They're getting them first. And it's not just affecting Pfizer. Moderna shipments expected next week have been cut, which the prime minister says, well, not a problem. Well, the premier says today, yeah, it's a problem. It is concerning. Uh, now we have Pfizer now, and, and now we have Moderna. Uh, we were expecting, I believe, 230,000 doses. So now we're getting 50,000 uh, short for the, for the whole country. That's why I'm asking and I'm pleading and begging Health Canada uh, please uh, get AstraZeneca approved. I hear the EU just approved it. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's the problem. There are many. Even if AstraZeneca gets approved, which uh, Health Canada late today says uh, that approval will come in day. So don't worry. We'll get another big wow announcement coming any day now that we've got another vaccine approved. How great is that? The problem is we're still at the mercy of the manufacturers. And all the contracts Canada signed, the contracts we still haven't seen, rely on European suppliers being able to supply the demand. 
And what is obvious now is that demand is massive and the European Union's making sure they get first deliveries. And the rest of us can just eat cake. Wait, no, crumbs, crumbs. We can eat crumbs. We'll take crumbs. No? I don't even know if we're going to get that. But I was, uh, you know, I got up this morning and, and I thought, you know, for that talking point of continually telling Canadians that we're getting vaccinated by September... You know, when people are certainly in the GTHA where people have been locked down, we know mental health issues are just starting to skyrocket. People are stressed out, tired, um, nervous, you know, on the brink. You know, if you're going to continually tell people you've got something, then you have to be able to deliver. And if the prime minister can't actually deliver in September, then he has to be true. You've got to be honest. This is really Otherwise, difficult. it's a lie. Yeah, it's more than difficult. When you tell someone you're going to do something that's a life and death matter and you don't actually know you can do it, it's a lie. we got a very busy show. We're going to talk about all of this and more. And um, we'll go into the area because I don't know. I don't know who's buying into these distractions. But the the kryptonite for Trudeau is the vaccines. A new polling tells us more delays and the more damage uh, it's causing to him. I mean, he's Teflon Trudeau, but uh, the, the new polling coming out shows a steep, steep drop in support for him. So we'll talk about that. We're going to talk a little bit about schools back. A um, couple of things came out today. Maybe, maybe not. Don't know. But we're going to talk to an educator who was all about the lockdowns and is now uh, imploring those in charge to ask, I think, what everyone should be asking. And that is, our kids are becoming broken. You know, when do we prioritize their well-being? It, it, it'll be an interesting, he wrote a very interesting article about that. And there were some weird things today, like I didn't know this. Did you know that the Trudeau government brought in private surveillance last March? And that private surveillance, starting tomorrow, is going to be knocking door to door. This private security company, if you're under quarantine, will come to your door and knock on your door. And if you're not there... You get in trouble. But when, since when in this country do we hire private surveillance? You'd, you'd think that maybe there would have been an announcement on that. I'm not sure who caught that today, but I was like, what? To the parents out there, you know, I, I hear you loud and clear. Um, they, they're, they're, they're stressed. Um, mm -hmm. The ones that are they're still going to work, they go to work all day. Mm -hmm. They come home. They play the teacher. Um, because then they're doing the homework and then they have the, the chores, the house chores and everything else. They're stressed to the max right now. And then the kids, it's about mental health as well. I'm, I'm hearing more and more from parents saying, hey, we, we got to get the, the kids back into in-class uh, teaching. And I, I, I agree. I agree too. I think every parent out there agrees. And he's right. We are stressed to the max. And, you know, you got to wonder, given all the school that uh, kids have missed, I think a lot of people are starting to ask, um, you know, do we cancel the March break? You know, do we cancel summer break? Um, you know, the main narrative seems to suggest, you know, keep kids home, it's safer. But that, that I don't think that is the actual opinion. There's a lot of concern, and we're certainly starting to hear more about this, that we are doing far more uh, damage long term, not just with mental health issues spiking, but most kids, especially younger kids, I can tell you, I got one sitting right behind me right now. Um, they aren't learning because they can't be online for hours at a time. Even Dr. Fauci has come out and is now speaking out about this, saying it is time we get kids back in class. And he points out saying kids are less likely to get infected than in the community. And um, I read an interesting opinion piece in the Toronto Star that asks the question, our kids are becoming broken. 
when do we prioritize their well-being? Are most teachers starting to think like you, or is there still a great divide? I don't know. I mean, you know, I really um, want to be cautious about speaking for for all teachers. Um, again, the, the piece is an opinion piece that I wrote. Um, it's a perspective that I'm seeing, and as I said, I, I have to think others are seeing it. Um, my my, you know, my main objective was to further the conversation around what are we doing for the kids. Um, you know, are we taking into consideration their well-being as this, uh, you know, as the lockdowns uh, grow longer and longer? Um, I think the kids need advocates to speak up on their behalf and to kind of raise these points. I'm happy to see people, um, you know, starting to have these conversations on on, on both sides. And some agree and some don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that we need to take these things into consideration when we look at what's going to happen next. When do we open schools? What types of activities are okay? I mean, I'll be honest. One mm-hmm. of the last straws for me was when we had this debate about whether or not um, Toboggan Hills could stay open for kids. Yeah. I mean, right. you know, w- when we're packing people into stores and the kid, like, what is it that we want the kids to do? What, what, what is it that we left open or that we provided for the kids because we understood, well, we can't leave nothing for the kids, you know? Um, and, and I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what we did, um, you know, in, uh, on their behalf. Well, you know, between, you know, it's hard to remember this now, but before COVID hit, um, strikes were disrupting school schedules. So the kids in the last two years of all grades have lost a tremendous amount of class time. Let me ask you this. Should we be canceling in your mind March break? Um, do you see us going into summer school and do you think teachers would be willing to do so? Yeah, again, um, you know, I'm going to leave those decisions up to um, the Ministry of Education. Would you be willing to work? I mean, we have to get them caught up. Uh, so would you, yeah, would you be, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think, I think you bring up a great point. And the point is that the kids have missed a lot of school and certainly that's, that's curriculum and, and the kids need that. Um, but again, back to the, back to another point, um, is that it's that whole socialization piece yeah. that a lot of those kids, and I read, to be honest, just before coming on the air, I was reading another great opinion piece in the star and it talked about all those intangibles that the kids had given up, right? The school is not just about the curriculum and the books and the learning. It's about all those experiences, especially at those younger grades that those kids need. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I don't know, you know, we're not going to get that back for them. And I don't know what the answer is in terms of public safety and canceling March break and limiting the spread. But I just want, when we're making those decisions, I want, um, you know, the conversation about the kids' well-being uh, to be, you know, at least a voice at the table when we make those decisions about how do we move forward and, and what do what types of things do we open up and what what opportunities do we start to provide for kids in in the name of their mental health? Yeah, well, I thought it was a, a, a terrific read. I'm glad to see um, that. Uh, and I think I think a lot of teachers actually probably think just like you. And so uh, I, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your thoughts because of the birthdays, the camps, uh, graduation, all these things kids are missing out on is just it's a long term effect that we won't see probably uh, come into effect for some time. But um, we're already seeing mental health crises. And uh, I hate to think of what it's going to like a few years from now if we just continually go like this. Adam, thank you very much for spending your time. Thank you very much. If you want to read that opinion piece, it's in the Toronto Star. His name is Adam Sanderson. So you get the perspective of a teacher. And I, I can only speak for my own school. I thank God for the teachers we have because they, they really do um, do the best and, and they're putting in a lot of effort. But I really, we're going to have to get these kids caught up. And I think that's going to mean sacrifice. And I just hope it doesn't get really political um, because it's just not what we need right now.
We're taking difficult measures now so that we can get through this quicker, so that uh, we uh, have less damage to our economy, to our industries, to our workers, to our uh, lives. Well, I think it's time to retire that talking point, you know, this roaring back, because if we can ever put this virus in the rearview mirror, roar is not in the cards. I mean, we knew before COVID came along that our GDP was flatlining, but now you look at the new GDP numbers and it shows that when it hit, it actually stopped our economy in its tracks. And as uh, Jack Mintz writes in the Financial Post, he says, you know, we have just gone through the worst five-year period for per capita economic growth since the Great Depression. But unlike the Great Depression, he further warns there won't be that post-depression boom because there's no boom to be had with investments in this country drying up and there's no real incentive for it to come back. Dr. Jack Mintz is with the University of Calgary School of Public Policy, also a distinguished fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, and he joins us now. Good to have you. Uh, my pleasure. You wrote for the Financial Post that lagging investment, stalled innovation are flatlining Canada's economy and causing immeasurable harm. So when we hear the politicians say, you know, we're going to get out of this and roar back, uh, that's not really, I think, what is about to happen. No, because I think the, the roaring back is based on, uh, you know, the consumers will come back uh, wholeheartedly and, and pump up demand and, and therefore the economy will grow. No, there certainly will be some of that uh, to happen for sure, although we'll have to see how people react because, you know, they've gone through this pandemic, they've learned how to save, and maybe they're going to start thinking that maybe there's nothing wrong with savings, actually, and uh, mm. help them with their retirement years. And also they have to be, you know, you have to be cautious because who knows what's going to happen over the next while. But my bigger point, really, in the article is that uh, we, we've had a terrible investment record uh, in the past five years, and that's been uh, one of the major reasons why our economy has not grown uh, at all. In fact, uh, actually declined uh, over the past five years. And and we need to uh, address an issue as, as we come out of this uh, COVID period, get to the post-COVID period, and and and. and we need to have policies that are going to address private investment to try to bring private investment back to the country. And and that is going to be far more important than just pumping up consumer demand because eventually uh, that will dry out and we're going to be left with uh, uh, various problems in terms of getting growth. And so it's really a warning to governments that they've got to get their act together. Well, they do have to get their act together, but that would also, uh, you know, mean that the government has to park its ideology. And, and we now have two. We've got an administration in the United States that is uh, going all gung-ho on green energy policy. And, and the Trudeau government has made no secret that climate change, in their mind, is the existential threat of our life. And so we have no investment going into oil and gas, manufacturing, you know, stalled. And we have a government here who has made it crystal clear they don't want innovation or investment in the industries, really, that could get us out of this very much more quickly. Well, I think, you know, there's going to be some sort of energy transition. and But I think people forget how expensive it's going to be. And it will be a drag, actually, on, on, on many economies except for ones that might be producing electric cars and, and, and those economies that might be, you know, uh, having commodities that are going to be used in the production of electric cars and et cetera. So there, there will be shifts in that way. Uh, some will benefit, some won't. Canada probably will not benefit that much. We don't have any particular comparative advantage in electric vehicle production. We don't have particularly comparative advantage in 
solar energy uh, or wind energy. There's lots of other countries that can produce it just as well as us, perhaps cheaply uh, in terms of manufacturing solar panels or, or windmills or whatever. In fact, we're not we're not uh, well known in, in any of that. Um, and so, uh, one thing we can offer are mining products, and probably oil and gas will continue to have some role. Uh, um, even in, in in the energy transition, but what people forget about is there's a huge shift in in uh, in in the kind of infrastructure that you have to have uh, in the new world, and it's going to be expensive. People are going to be paying more for cars ultimately. Uh, they're going to be paying more for uh, energy. It's going to become more expensive uh, down the road, and uh, and part of it is because you have to recover all the costs that are going to be associated with the transition. So. Uh, the trouble is, is that we forget all that, um, and also these things often take a lot of time, and and we're not going to be able to, if we rush into it, it's going to be probably more expensive uh, than if we make sure that we try to get things done right and get the technologies in that are going to work best. And uh, that's only one example of the sort of things that are going to slow us down, because if governments are going to be focused on new restributive policies like guaranteed annual income or you know, or or, or mm. pharmacare or things like that. All that comes with the cost. Somebody has to pay taxes for it. And this is the concern I have is that it's all well and good to have these great social policies, but if you don't grow the economy to make to make these policies affordable, uh it's it's gonna just lead to uh, uh everyone getting hurt in the end. Yeah, that's the big fear. And, and, you know, we're so heavily reliant on a vaccine that uh, is now, you know, very short of supply when the demand is around the world. So there is no, uh, you know, the prime minister can say we're getting it in September, but there's a very good chance, as the economist uh, predicted, that we would not get it here till mid-2022, which is when I guess the real economy would have a chance to kind of open back up. Um, How do you see, once we're on the other side of this thing, what does it look like? Well, I, I, you know, it's a good question. So, first of all, uh, the timing of you know getting back is all going to depend on on vaccines. Not only vaccines, but also also uh, you know the which we don't know enough about. You know, uh, health characteristics. You know, even once we have the vaccines, uh, there's still going to be concerns over new transmissions and all that sort of thing. But assuming that all kind of goes away and we finally get herd uh, uh, immunity, et cetera, that uh, the economy can come back, but uh, I think there's some very significant changes in behavior that will uh, will mean that some industries are not going to come rolling back. Um, for example, mm-hmm. I think there, there will be a fundamental change in travel, not so much passenger travel. I think people will still want to go and visit town, all sorts of places around the world that they enjoy doing. Um, but business travel, I think, uh, is going to change because people are, yeah. businesses are going to say, you know what, we can do a lot of things you know, by video conference to save costs. And, and I think that's going to happen. I think the commercial real estate sector is going to have some challenges, uh, in, especially in the very large cities, because people will not want to do long trend, um, you know, uh, long, um, uh, take long times to get to work uh, and living further out, not be crowded into small little apartments. And so I think there's going to be shifts in that way. Uh, and what it means is that the economy has had this major supply shock, and the way that you build it up is that you have to get new investment going, uh, both public and private investment, uh, in order to build up the economy. That's going to be absolutely critical, and, if you, and you have to have policies to do that. 
But if you start raising taxes on corporations like Biden's going to mm-hmm. do, and if you're going to start raising uh, taxes on, 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 you know, the entrepreneurs of the economy and things like that, uh, we're going to make it a lot harder to have a recovery, and 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 we'll be having higher unemployment as a result for a much longer period of time. Um, just quickly before I let you go, are we headed for a WVKA shaped recovery? What does it look like right now? Well, <laughs> I think it's a it's a common you know I think people have it right. It's a, it's a it's a mix. That's why people talk about the K. There's some sectors of the economy that are going to do fine. In fact, they've even done fine over yeah. the um, you know over the COVID period, uh, and that's like you know uh, tele you know telecommunications and. Uh, Technology companies, and, uh, you know, the dist- distribution companies are, you know, they're going to be doing, they're going to be doing fine. Uh, on the other hand, there's others that are going to, I think, you know, there's going to be fundamental changes in, in behavior that means it's going to make it harder for them to come back, and that's going to be things like retail trade and and uh, and uh, you know, to some extent, accommodation, you know, relies on business travel and things like that. I think those things are. Are going to be more difficult to come back. And then, of course, as we do this energy transition, we'll, we're going to find that a mm-hmm. huge amount of wealth that we've had with the uh, with our resort sector is is going to be uh, uh, particularly impacted. The oil and gas sector, uh, which um, which will hurt the whole country. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, is I, I think actually the oil and gas sector is going to have at least for the next decade. Um, uh, probably uh, a pretty good time because I think we're going to see higher oil prices um, um, in the next several, not right now, but uh, several years down the road because of the lack of investment in the oil and gas sector, which is going to happen with the U.S. now, which is going to be uh, yeah. the American oil and gas sector is going to go right through what the Canadian oil and gas sector has been going through uh, for the past few years. They're going to be having that for the next four years in the United States. Stay tuned. Either which way, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Dr. Mintz, I appreciate your time. Always thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. We also remain very much on track to getting every Canadian who wants to get vaccinated, vaccinated by September. That is something uh, that uh, I can reassure Canadians on. That's what we are working on. Uh, We are going to get there. Well, up until now, the prime minister has uh, been a bit of a Teflon Trudeau. And nothing sticks to the guy. And the p- pandemic has been you know, pretty kind to him as well. I mean, giving out bags of money and appearing outside the cottage daily boosted his polling numbers and put him into a majority territory, which is then, of course, why we hear so many whispers about a possible spring election. And then along came this little vaccine problem. And sure, we might have a giant portfolio, but we can't get the supplies. And they can tell us all they want that we're going to get the shots by September. But these delays and the more we hear about the volatility makes it uh, pretty clear that's not happening. And new polling that you look at by Angus Reid reveals Trudeau's kryptonite is doing a bit of damage. And over the past six weeks, that majority status has started to slip away with them dropping from a 58 percent support down to 45. I want to bring into the conversation Shashi Kurl, who's with Angus Reid, president over there. And um, you went through these numbers. It's a pretty, that's a pretty big slide. It's a pretty big slide and really important to, to be clear that the question on this isn't necessarily vote intention, but the level of confidence you have in the Trudeau government to, to basically manage 
uh, this vaccine rollout well. And on that front, there's been a massive hit to uh, just the level of confidence and faith that Canadians have in this government to, to get the job done. And so that is pretty critical. Even even more uh, disturbing, uh, a worse trend maybe, is the fact that in the last uh, you know month or so, we've seen the number of people in this country saying that the Trudeau government's doing a bad job in terms of securing vaccine, uh, nearly double. It was 23% in uh, December. It's now sitting at 44%. So we're really seeing a souring of the mood. And not a lot of surprise there, Alex, in terms of the fact that you had the prime minister and this government come out in December and say, look, we are among the first countries to be able to get vaccines. There's going to be injections going into arms very quickly. And we're a very seeing as believing kind of people. So when people start to see that, not only they feel really good, it gave them hope. It gave them a sense of optimism that maybe there was a, a corner turning on a pandemic that has, you know, it, it, it's killed people. But more than that, it's led to job loss, fatigue, depression, social isolation, loneliness. Canadians are in a big hurry to get this over with as, soon, as, as much as people elsewhere are. So you, you contrast that feeling, that good feeling that people had at the beginning of December based on what their government was telling them relative to the hiccups and the stumbles and the clunkiness we've seen, particularly in the last couple of weeks over is the vaccine going to be arriving? When is it arriving? How much is, of it is arriving? Why is there a delay? These are the things that are really uh, undermining that confidence that Canadians are feeling in their government right now. Yeah, and it's interesting because the uh, the news, we're getting a lot of news from Europe. I mean, The Economist uh, has predicted that we're not actually getting the vaccine now until mid-2022, and, and they've been challenged on this, like, where are you getting these numbers? And and our newsroom looked into it, and they said, look, we have broken down the data, we're looking at the delays, we're, we're kind of mushing it all together and doing these predictions. And so they're fairly adamant that Canada is not going to be, um, you know, given the vaccine by September. But Justin Trudeau, even today, uh, is really doubling and tripling down on this talking point that, you know, Canadians don't have to worry. And, and I look at it and I think, well, that's a very big promise to make when people are feeling pretty delicate. And, um, you know, it's almost giving people false hope. But if he can't deliver on these vaccines, how long does that talking point start to, you know, how long can he hold on to that talking point? Well, and, and so the proof is all going to be about the delivery. What I can tell you right now, Alex, as of today, as of this week, we haven't yet seen that lack of confidence, that sort of deflation that Canadians are feeling about their government's efforts to get the vaccination rollout done and done well. That has not yet started to have a significant impact on uh, the Trudeau government's polling numbers in terms of vote intention, right? So Canadians are still indicating that they're slightly more inclined to vote liberal than they are conservative. We put out numbers this week showing a 35-30 split between the liberals and, and the conservatives. So in part, this is also really important to remember that it, it's not just about, for Canadians, when they go to vote, it's not... Uh, well, do you want Justin Trudeau or do you not want Justin Trudeau? Do you want the Liberals in government or do you not want the Liberals? It's not in a vacuum. It's always about an alternative. And what I would say is that at this point, mm -hmm. uh, at this point in time, and of course things change, things are always changing, but at this point Canadians are not looking at Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives, particularly in places like Ontario, like British Columbia, like Atlantic Canada, and saying, 
yeah, that guy could do a better job and that guy is the alternative. And so until that starts to happen, you can be as mad as you want at the government of the day. But if you don't see an alternative, uh, you're going to stick with what you know. And that's the trend we've seen over and over and over again with Justin Trudeau. He manages to come through the problems, whether it's the SNC-Lavalin scandal Mm. or the We Charity scandal or other things, because people look at the alternatives and they say, "Mm, maybe not. Yeah, he's like Jason from Friday the 13th. You just can't get rid of him. But nonetheless, to your point, I mean, um, Aaron O'Toole uh, can't really punch through the noise because we don't have a regular sitting parliament, which also works to Justin Trudeau's advantage. And he can't go out to a podium in front of his house every day the way Justin Trudeau has been able to. But, you know, it's not men who are still supporting Trudeau. I think it's also interesting that for whatever reason, I don't know what it is about what, what women find so like, you know, they have to hold on to this guy, but they can't quit him. Well, I mean, look, a lot of it has to do with the issues that people consider most important or they care about the most. And so we know, for example, that there's a big gender divide uh, with, between women and men on issues of top. What's the top issue? What's the most pressing issue? For women, it is hands down health care. So whether that's COVID-19 management or whether that's just health care in general, that's what they put first almost almost every time very consistently. For, for male voters, we tend to see, particularly among older men, it's, it's about taxation, it's about deficit spending, it's about fiscal management. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as long as, as, as you've got basically couples and households not agreeing on, on who they should vote for, not that they should agree, that's not what I'm suggesting, but mm-hmm. the idea that as long as those, as those, as long as those arguments are, having, are happening around the dining table, uh, with uh, with with maybe the Mister uh, saying, well, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau and, and the Liberals have have not performed adequately on a number of economic or or other fronts, and and the Miz in that family is saying, you know, uh, I, I don't care. He's doing a good job handling healthcare, which is the issue I care most about. You're going to continue to see that gender divide. Jeez. Well. But soon enough, most women will probably be insane. Um, so you never know what will happen. But, uh, yeah, there's going to be a whole lot of arguments happening in the next few months over something because people are fed up with this. Well, pandemic fatigue. We can we yeah. can all agree that pandemic fatigue is something that is affecting households, whether you're a household of five with little kids at home or a household of one where you're shut in and not seeing anybody and, and you're going crazy from isolation. Uh, a lot of what's driving the anxiety and, and the unhappiness with the way things are going on the vaccine front has to do with the fact that we've been at this for almost a year now and it feels like a very long time. And when you don't have an end in sight, you don't know how long you have to hold on. That's really where people start to lose patience. And I think that's what we're seeing. When one day feels like a week and every day blurs into the next, you know, you know, we're at our breaking point. Shashi, always appreciate your time on this. Thank you for the deep dive into the number and uh, giving us a bit of a, a better understanding of what's at play here. All right. Thank you. My best. Thank you. That is uh, Shashi Kuril and uh, Curry. And when you uh, get a chance, you can look at this. This is uh, Angus Reid that did this latest polling. And uh, if you want to listen to the show, we have put this on our podcast. Just go to AM640 and search uh, On Point in your favorite podcast and you will find it there. Coming up next, we'll get into round one of CounterPoint brought to you by our very good friends over at Pizzaville. Stay with us here on this Friday, taking you into the weekend. I'm Alex Pearson On Point and this is Global News Radio. You, of course, can join us Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp.
I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.